to seek the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we begin reading at verse 3, and our text, sermon text, picks up at verse 11. We read down through verse 16. 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. Let's give our careful attention to the very word of the Lord. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. We suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Our text, But you, O man of God, flee these things, And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. And before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, many have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear, subject to your judgment because of their ingratitude and hardened hearts. But you've given to us to know the secret of your kingdom. And we pray that you would give us to know on this Lord's Day that by your Spirit we might see, and by your Spirit we might hear, and by your Spirit we might live. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are more needy than we know. We are in a greater spiritual conflict than we comprehend. And we pray, Lord, that by your Word you would do good things for our hearts, that you would save us from the ways of the evil one, that you deliver us from the sin of our own hearts, and that you'd set our eyes upon our Lord Jesus today, in whose name we pray. 
Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, from the opening words of our text, 1 Timothy 6, 11, we learn that there is an alternative. There is an alternative, praise the Lord. The Apostle has been warning Timothy about false teachers and about those who've strayed from the faith and those who've fallen into a love of money. And then he says, but you, O man of God. But you, O man of God, and with that abrupt personal designation, he grabs hold now of Timothy. Maybe it reminds us of parents using their children's middle names at times and seeing to awake them, calling out their name. And here it's not Timothy's name, but it's this title, but you, O man of God. There's this wonderful interruption. We love that word, but, as it often comes in in the gospel story, right? You think of Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in sins, but God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive. And now we see also this gospel interruption brings to us this gospel alternative that we don't have to live as the world, going after money as our God, piercing ourselves through with many sorrows. No, you're different, But you, O man of God, are different. And we have to remind ourselves of that, don't we, in this spiritual conflict? Because we we often begin to to slide, don't we? We begin to think like the world thinks. We become caught up in the current of our culture. We we begin to to think that what the world prizes and prioritizes, we ought to do. And we, we begin to drift. And then we have to say, but no, I'm different. We have to hear the Spirit say that to us. Maybe we begin to think of sexual freedom as the key to life. We begin to think of, of possessions as, as, as the source of happiness. We begin to think of, of anger as the thing that will make us happy. And the Spirit says, no, but you are different, a different way for you. And so the Bible gives to us a truly alternative lifestyle, doesn't it? What the world calls an alternative lifestyle is not an alternative. It's just another version of the same old rebellion against God. But the truly alternative lifestyle is this. But you, O man of God, flee sin, pursue righteousness, seek your God. And so the Lord is calling Timothy, this young pastor in Ephesus, and with him the congregation there, and with them all of us, To fight the good fight. To take up arms in this conflict. And as we look at this this morning and think of it in terms of warfare, we could divide our text, I think, under three headings. First of all, in verses 11 and 12, we see this this weighty commission that's given to Timothy. He must engage the conflict. But if he grows weary, thinks, I can't do it, then secondly, he must set his eyes upon his victorious captain, Christ, who's gone before him, who has fought the good fight, who sits in glory and is coming again for him. And yet, if that's not enough, then he must turn his eyes to the supreme command center, because this whole battle is under the control of the blessed and eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's look at those three points this morning. Timothy's weighty commission, first of all, then Timothy's victorious captain, and then the supreme command center. Well, the commission is in verses 11 and 12. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. 
language that Paul uses here, fight the good fight, it actually could be translated a little more broadly, a struggle, a good struggle, contend in the good contest. It could refer to athletics and running a race, boxing, a wrestling match, and so forth. But Paul, earlier in the letter, 1 Timothy 1 verse 18, told Timothy more specifically to wage the good warfare. And in 2 Timothy 2, he will tell Timothy to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so the apostle seems to be thinking of of warfare imagery. And he's calling Timothy now to, to engage this conflict. And he's insisting that the Christian life, not only the Christian ministry to which Timothy's been called, but the whole of the Christian life is a great contest. It's a great struggle. It's a battle. Faith is never without conflict. But there are deadly enemies everywhere. Now, that's not what we want to hear, right? Because by nature, we would love to, to, to live an easy Christian life, right? If, if, we could, if we could have God and go to heaven, but also have a, a rather relaxed life of ease, wouldn't we want that? We would love if our hearts always instantly loved God, wanted to praise and glorify. If we didn't have these internal struggles against sin, we'd be delighted if all the enemies of Christ's kingdom were no more, if there was no devil. But God has seen fit as we live upon earth to test us. And he's not transported us to glory And he's not brought about the fullness of Christ's kingdom yet. He has left us in a battle zone. And until we see the face of Jesus Christ, it is conflict. It is struggle. There are enemies. We are never civilians, not for a day, but we are always soldiers. Like it or not, we are always on the battlefield. In a worship service, we're in battle. At home, we've got our feet up, we're in battle. When we go to work, we're we're at battle. It's always conflict. It's always conflict. Now we have to get used to that as Christians. We have to recognize that. We have to put on a warfare mentality, which is quite different from a civilian mentality. John Piper, in his book from years ago, Desiring God, he, he brings forth this illustration, quoting Ralph Winner, about the Queen Mary, a ship that now lies in repose in Long Beach, California. But this ship had set a new standard for luxury in its day. It was elegant, it was magnificent, it was the place where all the rich and famous, the boat on which they wanted to travel across the Atlantic, was a glorious ship. But in World War II, it was refitted as a troop transport. And Ralph Winter says that if you visit the ship now, you can see a stunning contrast between the lifestyles appropriate in peace and in war. He writes, on one side of a partition, you see the dining room reconstructed to depict the peacetime table setting that was appropriate to the wealthy patrons of high culture, for whom a dazzling array of knives and forks and spoons held no mysteries. On the other side of the partition, the evidences of wartime austerities are in sharp contrast. One metal tray with indentations replaces 15 plates and saucers. 
bunks, not just double, but eight tiers high, explain why the peacetime complement of 3,000 gave way to 15,000 people on board in wartime. There's a difference, isn't there, between living in the luxury of peacetime and the austerities of wartime. And our text this morning would say to you, what are you cruising on? Is it a luxuriant vessel for peacetime or is it a ship fitted for wartime? What is the style of your life? Are you aware of enemies? Are you engaged in the conflict? Are you still looking and hoping and living as if it's about peace and enjoyment and it's so easy here below, surprised by any trial that might assault you? Or are your eyes wide open that you're vigilant and you're very aware, I live in the midst of a battle zone, I am constantly being attacked. False teachers are engaged in wicked schemes, the apostle tells Timothy. But not you. But you, O man of God, flee these things. It was a very arresting title that Paul used to address Timothy. O man of God, it's used sparingly in the Old Testament, but it's used for for men to whom God entrusted high office, like Moses and Samuel and David and the prophets Elijah and Elisha, men of God. When the Apostle Paul calls Timothy a man of God, he's saying to him, you are not your own. You are possessed. You are owned by another. You are in the service of someone else. That's true of every believer. Ordained as prophets, priests, and kings by Christ's spirit. We who will reign with Christ must now fight for Christ and with Christ. Man of God, woman of God, you are different. You are commissioned as a soldier. And you must say daily, I am not my own. I belong to another. It must be settled in your mind whose you are, whose uniform you wear, whose hands these are, whose eyes those are, whose time it is. I'm the Lord's. And fighting this conflict involves both the negative and the positive. Negatively, Timothy has to flee a bunch of things, and positively, he has to follow after righteousness. He has to flee the wickedness of love of money, greed, the useless disputing and quarreling of pride. So much of the Christian life is saying no. Beware of anyone who tells you you need to be more positive in the Christian life. You need to talk about the positive. Don't talk about the no's and the negative. Just be positive. That's completely out of line with the scriptures. Half of the Christian life is saying no. No to this and no to that. We have ungodly desires arising in our hearts all the time. We must live a life of saying no, not me. But that's not enough, is it? We must also pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. You can't flee wickedness without also pursuing righteousness. If you take off the dirty clothes, you have to put on clean clothes. If you throw out the idol gods, you must be filled with the true God, or there's a hole in your life, and it will, like a vacuum, suck up all the dirt of the world. So pursue righteousness and godliness, he tells Timothy. These six words here could be taken as three pairs. The first pair having to do with our relationship to God and his law, righteousness, doing what's right, being consecrated to God. And then faith and love, which has been called the animating principles of the Christian life. 
Everything we do is to arise from faith and be done with a love for God and a love for our neighbor. And then that last pair, patience and gentleness. Patience could be translated endurance or steadfastness. And if there's one thing a soldier needs, it is perseverance. Battle's not easy. Anyone who's been to war will tell you it's the grind, it's the ongoing. It's trying to keep with it. Perseverance. And yet, not harshness, but gentleness towards others. Timothy's to pursue these things. It's remarkable, isn't it, that we can grow in that. Just think of that endurance. We can, we can pursue endurance. We can pursue steadfastness. We can grow in these things. Runners grow in endurance, right? They, they, they engage in mental preparation. They, they train their bodies and discipline themselves. They set their eyes upon the goal, the marathon they're training for, and they grow in endurance, This morning we say, I'm so weary, I'm so tired of the battle. God says, pursue endurance. Become strong in your mind. Set your eye upon the goal. Train yourself how to be disciplined day after day. And teach it to the children. Are we raising in the church of Jesus Christ soldiers? Are we raising soldiers? Are we raising those prepared for battle? Are we going to wake up one day and and see that we've raised up a generation to seek themselves and to love money and to love all the luxuries of an easy life? And as the culture comes caving down upon them, they'll be unable to stand. We must train up the next generation for battle. Timothy needed to be reminded as a pastor and a Christian. He needed to remind the congregation. He needed to hear the calling, fight the good fight. Lay hold on eternal life. Fight the good fight. John Calvin says God sweetens the sadness with that word. It is a conflict. And if that weighs upon you, say, I'm tired of the conflict. God says it's a good fight. It's for a good cause. It's for my glory. It's for your eternal salvation. It's a good fight. It has a definite goal and a definite victory. Many have gone to war not knowing if their cause was a noble cause, not knowing if if their efforts would be crowned with victory. But yours is a good cause. Fight the good fight. Lay hold on eternal life. Eternal life is a gift given But it's also a prize to be won. We are to be forward-reaching, as the Apostle also makes clear in Philippians chapter 3, when he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Christian life is a struggle to take hold at that last day of that everlasting life. In the next letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, Paul will say, I'm already being poured out. The time of my departure is at hand. Paul's going to die. And so he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. To fight the good fight is to long for the fullness of eternal life. And it is to reach for it, to strain for it, to say no to everything else that we may have it. To pray and to look for Christ's coming, to long to see our Savior. And those who have wandered from the faith are those who have taken their eyes off the goal and no longer hunger for Christ. Timothy's great commission and our weighty commission is to fight the good fight of the faith and to lay hold on eternal life. Well, how can we do that? In our struggles, our eyes are to be set upon Christ. Notice, secondly, Timothy's victorious captain, verses 13 and 14. The apostle goes on to say, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Timothy is to take up this charge or this commission in the presence of God who alone can give life, and in the presence of Christ Jesus, who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Now, if you noticed, actually, Paul just before this said at verse 12 that Timothy had made the good confession. Timothy had made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Commentators puzzle over whether that's the confession Timothy made at his baptism or the confession he made at his ordination. In one sense, it doesn't matter because... In both places, his confession, no doubt, was that he trusted in Christ and would serve Christ. But how can Timothy uphold his confession? How can Timothy stick with it and fight the good fight? Well, Paul says, look at Jesus. He made the good confession. He made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Put your eyes on him. Jesus Christ, remember, when he was asked by the Roman governor of Judea, Are you the king of the Jews? He says, it is as you say. Or in John's account, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And then Pilate said to him, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, why does the Apostle Paul bring up Jesus' confession before Pontius Pilate? Well, for two reasons, I think. Number one, to remind Timothy that Christ has already gone before him to make the confession in the most hostile, difficult place that one could make the confession. Christ was on trial. Christ was being threatened with execution. Christ knew full well that if he proclaimed himself king, then the Jews would do exactly what they did do. They would say to Pilate, if you let him go now, you're no friend of Caesar. He's called himself a king. 
And so they demanded that Pilate execute Jesus. Jesus knew full well that if he made the good confession, announced his true identity, it would be the ammunition to kill him. Jesus knew full well that to confess himself king was to call forth the cross. And yet Jesus Christ made the good confession because he was willing to go to the cross. His confession cost him everything. Christ, in that most hostile place, Satan himself opposed to Jesus. Christ on trial before men and before Satan and before God makes the confession. And in doing that, he pioneered for a path, a path for us. And so Hebrews 12 can say, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Timothy, you made a confession. You have to stick with it now. You've promised that you would steadfastly continue in this profession. Isn't that what we all said in our profession of faith? Why we promise to forsake the world and to follow Christ and to continue steadfastly in this profession. We said, I do, I will. Now the going gets tough and what do we do? We need to set our eyes upon the author and finisher of our faith. Upon Christ who cut a trail for us because he went before us and he made the good confession and he fought the good fight. That's the first reason Paul appeals to Christ's confession. But the second one, I think, is this. Because Christ's confession was vindicated. Christ, in his life, it was proven that it was not foolish for him to have made that confession and for him to have endured the suffering that would follow. But the cross was the route to the crown, right? The cross was the route to the crown. It's a good fight. We make a good confession. Because those who suffer now will reign later. Paul says to Timothy, I urge you, in the sight of God, I urge you before Christ who witnessed the good confession that you keep this commandment without spot until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Your captain, who went before you, Timothy, who stood in the place of great hostility to make the good confession, willing to lay down his life in the battle, has been crowned with glory and he's coming again for you. Be bold. Be strong. The Lord your God is with you. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, Colossians says. And so we have all the help and all the strength we need. Christ has not only pioneered a path for us, but he's won the glory for us. He's coming again for us. He's all strength and power for us. And even when we stumble and we fail the confession we've made, We remember that Jesus Christ made the good confession even for the sake of Peter who would deny his Lord 
and yet who would be delivered by Christ's good confession and be brought to glory. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart, Timothy. In the battle, you are not alone. Your captain has already won the victory. And if that's not enough, then set your eyes upon the Supreme Command Center, finally, verses 15 and 16. Our third point, Christ's appearing, Christ's coming again, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. When troops are at battle, the control center, the command center, has quite limited capacities, right? They may try to gather intelligence. They may try to know what's going on in the battlefield. They may try to order and deliver supplies and ammunition and, and troops and air support and all that. But, but there's always limitations upon any earthly command center. But for the Christian engaged in the conflict, the command center to which we look is without limit. It's God himself. Jesus Christ is coming back, Paul says, the Holy Spirit says, verse 15, Jesus Christ is going to appear again at the very moment that God has determined which he will manifest in his own time. Who's calling the shots in your life? Who's calling the shots in this conflict in which we are engaged? It's not, it's not the kings and princes and presidents of the world. It's, it's not you. It's not your enemies. It's not Satan. There is one supreme being who is calling all the shots upon the earth. And he's going to send forth his son at the moment he has determined He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are so often impressed or intimidated by earthly rulers. We get excited when our guy gets elected. We get depressed when our guy doesn't get elected. And of course, there is an important place for Christians to pray for godly rulers and to stand for righteousness. And we are grateful for the Supreme Court decision and know that elections have consequences and all of that. But our hope is not in princes. When they die, they return to the earth, the psalmist says. Our hope is in our sovereign God. Psalm 115, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Ephesians 1, in him also we've obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you see it? It's a, it's a good conflict in which we are engaged because God is working all things together for our good. It's a good conflict because God is supreme over everything. We may think God is being harsh with us. The, the trial is severe. And Christ tells you the conflict is good. 
Because God, because God, the ruler of all, the blessed and only potentate who dwells in unapproachable light is working it all together for your good. Paul calls him the blessed. He is the God who contains all happiness and dispenses all happiness to his people. And nothing can prevent God from making his people eternally happy. Because he alone has immortality. No one, nothing else in the world has immortality of itself. We gain immortality as bestowed on us, but only God has immortality. And he dwells in unapproachable light. He is light. He is radiance. He is holiness. He is goodness, righteousness, truth. Not even Moses, the friend of God, could look God in the face, but only saw his back in passing. There's none like him. And yet, though we cannot look upon God as sinners, for God has said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. We have this promise that we will see God in a certain sense. Because God will give himself to us at Christ's appearing. The commentator George Knight puts it like this, a little complicated but glorious. When this great and majestic God brings about the appearance of Christ, who has already brought life and immortality to light, Christ will enable Timothy to lay hold of eternal life and put on its attendant immortality. Remember 1 Corinthians 15 says that we will put on, this mortal will put on immortality. This corruptible will put on incorruption. When Paul says lay hold of eternal life, he's saying reach for that day. When the the corruptible will put on incorruption, when the mortal will put on immortality, when you'll be fitted to live with God. Paul sets Timothy's eyes upon the Lord God who has this immortality and who will at his appearing in Christ Jesus will make himself available to us, will bestow upon us immortality. We shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. That's the destiny God has in store. You see... Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called. It's that calling of God in our lives that makes all the difference. It's the guarantee that all of our efforts, all of our struggles will come to something because the sovereign God and his grace has called us to possess with him immortality, to live in his blessed fellowship, to be made happy eternally. And if that's the command center, if that's the goal and the purpose of the control center of the universe, then it is a good fight. As Keith Getty and Stuart Townend put it, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. We're not in some chaotic battle upon the earth. Nobody knows what we're fighting for. Nobody knows the outcome. Nobody knows if we're going to have enough ammunition. That's not the conflict we're in. The conflict in which we are engaged, dear brothers and sisters, is the one in which our captain has already won the victory at the cross and the empty tomb. 
A conflict in which now our captain sits in the control center with God Almighty, with whom he is one, the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, and who is going to be sent back for us at just the right moment. If you're waiting for a version of the Christian life upon earth where you can at last relax, no more troubles in your heart, no more troubles at work, no more troubles in your neighborhood, no more troubles in your families, then you won't find that except from a false preacher. Because the message of the word is this you are a soldier in a battle. Till Jesus Christ returns. Plain and simple. But your resources are extraordinary. It is Christ in you. Christ above you. Christ for you. And Christ coming again to bring you to him. Lift up your hearts. Christ has sweetened the sadness. It is a good fight. Amen. Our Father in heaven, how we need you in this great struggle. We grow weary, and we pray that our Lord Jesus would fill us, that he'd keep us, that he would strengthen us. Oh God, may we stand strong and endure to the end. And where today, Heavenly Father, we've been laid low by our sin, maybe we fall into the same temptation again, and we are broken and sad. But where today, Lord, we are disillusioned because we did not expect the grief that we're enduring, where, Heavenly Father, it seems so far away, the victory. We pray that today you would set our eyes upon our Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In his name we pray, amen.